If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, page 715 in the church Bibles. While you're turning to Mark 10, that's just a couple of things. Um, we're going to take two Sundays to um, work through this. And I'm going to be as comprehensive as the text will let me be, and frankly, as I'm able. So maybe not all your questions will be answered this Sunday, but all spirit and Lord willing, in a couple of Sundays when I return, um, hopefully they'll be answered. And when we begin, purposely, we're going to pull our lens back if you would, as we look at the text, as far back as we should, and that will begin in the beginning. Just keep that in mind. Chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, verse 1, Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command, he replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, The disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Amen. These last uh, three verses, we're we're not going to work through this time, so just keep that in mind. All right, let's pray together, please. Father, we would ask this morning that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher May he remove the blinders from our eyes, speak to our hearts, stir our minds as he teaches us this text. So in that, God, we pray for clarity and humility, and we pray for compassion on the souls of men and women, compassion for our marrieds, compassion for the divorced, compassion for the widow, compassion for the single. And by your grace, God, change what needs to be changed in all of us as we consider the words of Jesus Christ here. Father, as always, I really, really need your help. And I would humbly ask for that help as we humbly pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When the Pharisees came to test Jesus on the topic of divorce, he did the same thing that we should do when facing difficult questions Or issues. Jesus returned them to first principles. Jesus went back to what was absolute truth. Truth as it was given in the beginning by the living God to order the world that he had made. And the truth God gave then was not a conservative truth as we would understand that term now. Nor was it a liberal truth as we would understand that term now as well. Because I frankly don't want us to be caught up in that trap as we work through this. So please do not draw as a conclusion this morning, you know what, we need, to get, we need to get back to the good old days. You know, when men were men and women were women and people knew their place and were much more self-reliant and they made their own socks and they made their own stuff and so on. Please don't think like that for two reasons. One, the good old days ended in the garden at the fall. And two, 
What we need is Christ. We don't need the good old days. Because you see, in our day, what we're experiencing in the rejection of God's truth, uh, the rejection of his first principles on changing truth, that ought not to be thought as of something new. We may label humanity's rejection of God truth as, you know, postmodern or relativism. However, however, it is fundamental for us to realize this is not new. No, since the fall, the human heart has always been desperately wicked, desperately perverted, and wants anything other than the truth of God, the law of God, and certainly the Son of God to order its existence. Postmodernism, uh, relativism, this idea that truth is situational, that nothing is objectively right or wrong, and the definition of right or wrong depends on either the prevailing view of an individual or a group of individuals, or it depends on the times or the culture that we live in. This idea dates back not to the 1960s, but that idea, that thing, dates back all the way to the garden when a fork-tongued snake asked that famous question, hath God said, right? Did God really say that? And did he really mean it? And that very first question out of the serpent's mouth was a means of throwing God-ordained truth, God's first principles, right under the bus, thereby telling mankind that truth was his or hers to adjudicate, right? That truth was ours to judge. Truth was ours to decide and ours to define. So either we or enough we's could actually be the source of truth. And of course, every time we sin against the God who makes us and sustains us, we're echoing the words of the serpent. Did God really say? Did he really mean that? And of course, when we sin, we're answering no. Indeed, in marriage, the evil one will be very glad to ask, did God really say? If your Bible's open, you'll see this in verse 6 of chapter 10. Did God really say at the beginning of creation, made the male and female, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. No longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Right? Did he really say that? And did he mean it when he said it? And what we know is, sadly, that so many have come to the conclusion that he didn't, and truth in marriage is theirs to define. That what was true way back then is no longer truth anymore, or certainly not truth for me, or frankly, it never was truth. Society's movie movers and uh, shakers. But even local folks on local streets determine that we will be the measure of all things and we have the ability to define what is right and what is wrong or redefine it or redefine it maybe not now but li- uh, a little bit later, whichever works best for us. Now, I don't want that, do you? I don't want Johnny. And I don't want a group of Johnnies in the culture telling me this is truth. I don't even want me to define what truth is. Because I know me. And I don't need that. If I base my life, now think with me. If I base my life on truth that is a shifting sand from one moment to the next, from one generation to the next, where do I stand in any given year? How do I build a life on that? How do I build a marriage on that? And we've seen this in our own culture when things once held to be true, we'll say a few years ago, are deemed untrue. And that truth in X, whatever X is, is now radically different than what it was. Even as I say that, that's not always a bad thing. Because man as man has made and can make a hash out of anything, including God's truth. Right? 
We've mishandled the Bible, perverting it for either their own advancement, be it a political issue or a personal issue or even a religious issue or even the fact that we're mere humans and we will not get everything right in the time that we live in. We ought to be humble enough to say that unless we think we've made heaven on earth. Still, what we have from the Holy Scriptures is a holy, loving God saying, here's truth. This far you may go and no more. Anything less than that, we have nothing to build a life on. Anything less, we have only to look to ourselves or a bunch of selves, if you would, for truth. So we should thank God together, as we um, often do, that we've been given a set of clear, unchanging standards. And God has given that standard in the Holy Scriptures, and He's given the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the Holy Scriptures. He's given us His moral law. He's given us His Son, the embodiment of truth. Why is that so important? Because when we look to the Son in the Scriptures, we will see exactly how we are to believe and exactly how we are to behave as humans, which are fallen, if you would, on this side of heaven. And of course, He's given us the faith the once and for all faith delivered to the saints. So is it your faith? Is it your faith? Or are you looking for something new, something different? Um, a bit bored these days, are we? So we need a little more excitement? So when a man or a woman comes to me for counsel, and I hear them say, I must divorce my wife, I must divorce my husband, because I've fallen in love with someone else, and we're perfect for each other, I made a mistake in marrying her, or I made a mistake in marrying him. I'm, I'm so much in love with the other, it must be right. I can reply to that with humility, but with certainty. You're wrong, because you already have a wife, and you already have a husband. Now, we understand that the institution of marriage, as Jesus explains here, is rejected by many, redesigned by some, and unfulfilled by others. The, the hemming in element of one man and one woman together as long as they both shall live is thought of by many people today as either restrictive, impossible, or unreasonable. Still, what we try to do here when we conduct a wedding at West Cohasset is that we point out to those people who have gathered to witness this marriage ceremony, we tell them this is ordained by God. And it's not to be entered into lightly or carelessly, rather thoughtfully with reverence for God and due consideration, as it says, of the purposes of which God established marriage. Okay, then, what are those purposes? Well, here's three. Number one, the companionship, the intimacy that husband and wife are to give each other throughout the entirety of their life. Two, the gift of children as they are able from God to be brought up and trained to love and obey God. And three, this is important, marriage is given for the welfare of human society. So when a marriage is healthy, it helps to strengthen and make happy society. When that marriage bond is held in high honor, it gives a picture to the, to the world of the marriage, if you would, between Christ and His church and the loyalty and love that Jesus has for the church and in turn, the loyalty and love which the church has for Christ. I said this in the first service. It's not in the notes. I remember one of the first weddings I attended. And after the wedding, there was a dance. And there was a lovely couple. They're still here. And they were dancing. And I was so happy to see them together. And they looked so much in love. 
And basically, I was enjoying that scene and just saying, isn't marriage great? Isn't it beautiful for the welfare of human society? So that means that marriage is not just personal. I mean, that's too much today. It's far more than a personal issue. It is a theological issue, no apology there, and it's a cultural issue. And of course, when a culture turns its back on God's design, there's moral problems, psychological, social, spiritual, and of course, personal consequences, which in time will follow. In other words, when we turn our back on God's creative principles as it was in the beginning, there's going to be consequences. I mean, just read your Bible, you'll see that. And even as I say that, what do we say? Well, we say that all hope is not lost, is it? Why? Well, because we can thank God that the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than all those consequences. And God can. This is his specialty. He can transform those consequences. He can sanctify each of those consequences. So it would almost be cruel, right? If I didn't remind you that Jesus came to die for such sins as these. And he longs to forgive and to transform and to restore like it never, never happened. Can he do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he can do that. Like it never, ever happened. And he also longs to say, hey, I want you to live in a marriage the way I meant it to be. Now, if you look at your Bibles, at the end of chapter 9, the very first question I asked myself as I was looking at chapter 10 was, why me? No, just kidding. (laughs) Anyway, the very first thing I said, okay, is there a connection between the end of 9 and the beginning of 10? And I answered yes pretty quickly, and here's why. Chapter 9 ended with Jesus asking his own people, his disciples, are you living the kind of life which makes a real impact on society for the gospel? And a phrase, are you living in my name in order that people will want to know and hear about me? That was the big question. Or are you living an alternative lifestyle? Are you living in your own name, fashioning your own life to your own likings, which really has no impact for Christ in society at all? You know, taking, not giving. So in other words, Jesus was asking them, are you salty? Are you a preserving, transforming, and influencing those around you? Or are you a stumbling block? That's verse 42. Causing others to sin by the way that you live. Or verse 43, you're not dealing with sin in yourself. So the big question that Jesus was saying was, are you salty? So if you look at your Bible, the very last sentence of the very last verse of chapter 9, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, the interpretation is for the 12. The application is for every Christian. And one of the best ways we can more clearly be salty to help preserve and transform a society in the context of a Christian marriage is in the context of a Christian marriage. A marriage at peace with itself. A marriage shining the light of Jesus Christ in a dark world. Now, we'll turn the lens a little tighter. Because what we'll see here in verse 10, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1, that the ministry of Jesus has left Galilee, and now he's making his way to Judea, across the Jordan, on to Jerusalem. Here, as he stops... The crowds came to him. And you can see it there in verse 1. His custom was he taught them. He taught them. Now, those of you who've been with us in our studies in Mark, we recognize that is fundamental to the ministry of Jesus. From the very beginning, he was teaching them. 
Yes, there were signs which accompanied his ministry. Yes, he healed the sick and so on. But remember, right from the start, Jesus made it clear to the disciples. They remember, they wanted him to stay in Capernaum because people were being healed. And they're like, you know, Jesus, let's just put stakes down right here. This is fantastic. People love you. People are being helped. Let's just keep it going. But what did Jesus stay? He says, I cannot stay. Why can't you stay, Jesus? Well, he said, we need to go other places and preach there also, for that is why I have come. In other words, the miracles are merely a sign of the kingdom of God, a sign of who I am. They're good, I get that, but they're not the gospel. They affirm the gospel, certainly, but they're not the gospel. So in verse 1, the crowds came to him, and then verse 2, the Pharisees come after him, as they so often did. Some Pharisees came and tested him. And that's important because this begins to frame the whole question and answer session of which they wanted to hold with Jesus. And it's going to frame how Jesus answers them because it's clear they're not looking to help marriages, right? They're not asking that question because they have a real burden for marriages in their, in their society and they need some help. No, they're there to test. And that word test is used by Mark four times in the gospel. Three times it's used of the Pharisees. But the very first time it was used of the evil one himself. Mark chapter 1 verse 13. Satan testing Jesus. Is that significant? Absolutely. Why is that significant? Well, beyond the mechanics of proper interpretation, Mark means to make his readers all right think. Where did I see that testing stuff before? Why, it was when Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. Okay? And just, now think... Just as the evil one, what did he do? He twisted the Holy Scripture in his tempting of Jesus, wanting to see Jesus fail. The Pharisees are doing the exact same thing here in order to trap him. Now, they shade it with a question, of course, verse 2. But there's all the difference in the world between a person who has an honest question and they really want help than a person who's just being a royal pain in the neck And all they want to do is put you in a corner and kind of put you out and say, aha, we got you, right? So they use the scripture to promote their own agenda. Happens all the time. Not much has changed, has it? Religious people using the word of God, not to preach the son of God, but either to affirm their own position or promote their own stance on things. So you find religious people, nice people, referring to the Bible all the time. Yes, to, but what, to what end? To what end is the Bible being used? Is it being used in order to set out who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what it means to follow him? Is it being used to preach Christ, the cross, death, resurrection, the reality of his return, the fact that all of us are sinners and we need the grace of justification active in our life? Or is Mr. or Mrs. Fantastic using the Bible to undermine its truth and simply seek to promote their own agenda? Carving out sections of the Bible for their concerns, for their loyalties, for their personal advancement or even convictions. And remember, this is why it's so important, why I take the time to tell you this. The root of that kind of thing, who started it all? The evil one started it all. He was the one. So loved ones, please do not be so naive to think that just because someone uses the Bible, that there's a level of orthodoxy to it. I mean, I was thinking here, how really... Horrible it must have been to live under the spiritual care of the Pharisees. Because at the heart of their care was the evil one himself. 
So again, they're not asking the question because uh, they care and they want help. They're asking the question because they just want to test. Their question, verse 2, do you see it there? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Background to that question. Very, very important, right? Because in the time that Jesus lived, there were basically two Jewish teaching groups who made clear publicly their convictions about divorce. One group was very liberal, allowing divorce for essentially any and every reason. The other group, very conservative and strict when it came to the issues of divorce. The Pharisees then were trying to get Jesus to pick a side for two reasons. One obvious, one probably not obvious. The obvious reason, if Jesus goes with the liberals, what happens? Then he's on the outs with the conservative group. If he goes with the conservatives, then he's on the outs with the liberal group. In other words, you know, you can't watch Fox News and CNN at the same time. You need to pick a cable news network, right? You can't be a Democrat and you can't be a Republican at the same time. You're going to need to choose. That's their first reason. The other reason had to do with King Herod and his wife Herodias. Remember them? Because just like our own time, about three summers ago, remember when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage and the topic of marriage moved immediately to the top of public discourse. So, in order for Herod to marry Herodias, he had to divorce his wife. And Herodias, in order to marry Herod, deserted and then later on divorced her husband. The marital affair created a political crisis, and then, believe it or not, there was a war between two kingdoms. And by the way, remember John the Baptist? He was preaching to this couple and telling them about the wrongness of their situation, and it cost him his head. It cost him his life. So put it all together. It's in the air. People are talking. Two religious sides oppose each other. Pick a side, Jesus, because maybe what happened to John It could happen to you, we hope. But Jesus, as he so often did, and frankly, I wish I did a whole lot more, he answered their question with his own question. Verse 3, what did Moses command? In other words, Jesus brings them first back to the Bible. What does the Bible say? And they answer there, verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Don't you hate those last three words? What is that? Send her away. It tells you the heart of the matter there. But anyway, what they were doing was summarizing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, which begins this way. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, okay, now what is Jesus doing? Well, he's sending them back to the Word of God, His intent is to find out how they were interpreting it. The Pharisees, in turn, give an incomplete answer. They failed to say, if you would, the rest that Moses gave permission for divorce to take place if a man found something indecent, and I put that in quotes, in his wife. Because the point of contention for them was over what constituted something as indecent. What's the definition of indecent? Now, it's not so different now as we try to answer the question, when is divorce allowable under God? I mean, again, there's nothing new under the sun. Here was their mistake. Moses, now this is important. Moses did not write what he wrote in order to make it easy for men to divorce their wives. Quite the opposite. It was written to constrain men, to control men from divorcing due to the fact that at that time they were out of control. 
And they were divorcing their wives for all kinds of reasons, which essentially were, if she's not what I want her to be, then I can divorce her. Or if she's not pleasing to me, as I determine what pleasure is, then I can divorce her. In other words, their heart was hard. And that's why Jesus replies to their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 in verse 5. Do you see it? It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. So you see, because they had so hardened their hearts to God's intention in marriage, a man could divorce his wife at that time if, what, she over-salted his food, if overcooked her food, um, no longer found her up to his likings, right? She wasn't pretty enough. Therefore, they were unprepared to follow God's original intent in marriage. They were unprepared to give their love to their wife within the framework of what God intended originally in marriage. And so, as it always is with these kind, I'm going to think here, they they viewed the Scripture to their advantage, right? How far can I go? You know, tell me chapter or verse. How far can I go? Call it the Bible answer, man. How far can I go without being seen as wrong? So, so see how far I could string out my lust and still follow the letter of the law. So those certificates of divorces, those papers were intended to be a barrier against divorce. But essentially, they turned it into a bridge for an easy divorce. Those certificates were meant to prevent divorce, but they twisted it for permission to divorce. So as long as you had your papers, right, you had your certificate, everything was good with God. It's funny, isn't it? In our time, people say, well, we don't need a piece of paper from City Hall to make a marriage a marriage. In their time, they were saying, we need that piece of paper <laughs> signed and sealed, right? That way I can, when it's all done and I give the certificate and shove it in my wife's face, I can put on my best shirt, put on a few gold chains, <laughs> and get back into the game. Find me somebody I can really, Right? And again, I mean, I keep saying this. There is nothing new under the sun. Find me a loophole. Find me that loophole. I might take it, or at least I could use it as leverage towards my wife if she's not doing what I need her to do. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't get drawn into this heavy debate as to what is indecent and what it means or what it doesn't mean. And when is divorce allowable, or not at all. He doesn't do that here. He'll do that later on, but he doesn't do that here. See, they want to talk about divorce to test. Jesus wants to talk about marriage to protect. And therefore, what does he do? He takes them back to first principles. And he says, guys, let's go back before Moses and discover the nature of marriage. Let's get to God's definition and intent of marriage. Well done, Jesus. Why do I say well done? Because rabbinic teaching said at that time, the older your source, the higher your authority. Jesus goes all the way back to creation. He quotes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, and he puts them together in a lovely way, doesn't he? Verse 6, that's Genesis 1.27. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, I need to stop here for a second. Notice what Jesus does with the creation account. He doesn't use it as allegory, right? He's quoting it as real history, factual history. Jesus doesn't think the first two chapters of Genesis is a poem. 
He thinks it really happened. There really was an Adam. There really was an Eve. There really was a garden. Paul does the exact same thing in Romans 5 concerning the nature of sin. How does he build his argument? Not with allegory. He takes people all the way back to creation. And he said, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And we were made sinner. But in Christ, we are made righteous. Now, right around now, you should be saying to yourself, well, this is not a sermon to tell my wife or tell me to buy my wife a whole lot more flowers, get her more candy, and be a whole lot nicer to her. Nor is it a sermon, honey, just let the fellows go off a little bit more and everything will be happy in your, your marriage. You may need to do those things. Frankly, that's none of my business. That's your business. This is what I can tell you. I can tell you that by nature, when we think on marriage and divorce, because this is the heart of the Pharisee, our fallen disposition immediately goes straight to, okay, I'm going to flick through my Bible to find out what's allowable, what's changeable, in order that it's going to be well for me. How will it work for me? Let me test, uh, tell me my limits so I can just press them. When Jesus says, you know what, let's just go back to the basics. And remember, marriage is not a human invention. Marriage is not a social custom. Marriage is a creation ordinance, which means at the very beginning of time, when God makes man and God makes woman, he institutes for them exactly, and we should thank God for this. This is exactly how things ought to be in the world that I've made. And since he alone made all things and sustains all things, he has the justifiable right to make it clear to his creation, this is how you are to function, this is how you should live, and this is why it is so. And all those things are answered. So when you look at marriage then from God's eyes, what do you see? Well, look at your Bible there in verses 6 and 7. The first thing you see is that marriage is limited, right? It's limited to a man and a woman, right? Not two men, nor two women, not a man and a few women, not one woman and a few men, which actually takes places in some parts of the world. There's no provision for those arrangements. What is a marriage? It is limited, one man and one woman. Secondly, a marriage is disruptive. Why do I say disruptive? Well, look at verse 7. It's disruptive in a good way. The man leaves his father and mother. The lady leaves her father and mother, right? So think with me. It's something like this. You, You have your family, and it's wonderful, and it's been going that way for a long time, right? You live together, and you guys ate together, and you take trips as a family together, and you work together, and you have meals together, and it's just beautiful. And then one day, there's a knock on your door. It's your front door, and guess who it is? It's a Rob. And Rob says to you, this is what Rob says to you. Can I have your daughter for the rest of my life? Say yes, say yes, because I need to know. And, And no matter how nice the fellow is, it's disruptive because basically what he's saying is, I'm here to disrupt your family. I want to take your girl and I want to live with her. I want to care for her. I want to sleep with her and have children with her. And you're like, what? <laughs> can, he, can he do this? I mean, let's find through the Bible. Oh, I am going to be a Pharisee. Can you do that? Well, of course he can. It's disruptive but in a good way. For this reason, a man will leave. He will leave his old life and be connected to his wife. Marriage is limited. It's disruptive. Thirdly, marriage is to be permanent. That's verse 9. And the source of that is God. God is joined. Let no one separate. So in the purposes of God, God's intent was for marriage to be permanent. 
Now, I want you to think with me, because Jesus says God has put the couple together. He has put the couple together. So, the feelings here are, are secondary. They're important, but they're secondary. If you try to build your life on feelings uh, and emotions of love, you're doomed. You're doomed. All the questions in a marriage ceremony have nothing to do with feelings. They're volitional. They're questions of the will. Do you, do you, do you, will you, will you, will you? You're making promises. You make promises volitionally with the mind, right? Expressions of the will for better or worse, richer, poor, sickness, health, love, cherish, till death us do part. So what God is saying, there's not to be any back doors. It's not my purpose there. The man leaves his father and mother, breaking that family bond. In the language of Matthew 19, that's the um, parallel text. He says from 224 of Genesis, you cling, you cleave to your wife. The idea is like you're glued to her. That is lovely, isn't it? You're literally stuck together, right? You're you're glued together. This is probably not going to make you laugh, but it made me laugh this week. The Marx Brothers. Remember the three Marx Brothers? And there was the one who never talked. They had the curly kind of blonde hair, and he'd wear the hat, and he'd always be touching. That was part of the comedy routine. He would touch, and then you'd take his hand off. He would touch you again. That's a marriage. Even if she it's glued. You're glued together. And the word united carries, and this is important, the idea of a continual pursuing hard after your husband or your wife. Marriage is two people unbreakably connected, yes, but they're pushing hard towards each other, to be united in mind and united in will, and to be united in spirit and body and emotion, united in outcome. That's the intent. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. In other words, Jesus says you're all in, and you stay all in in decade number one, in decade number two, and God willing, three and four. You don't let up. You don't let up. This is a covenant, and I am her possession, and she's my possession, and both of us are God's possession. Limited, disruptive, permanent, and finally, marriage is sexual, right? That's verse 8. The two become one flesh. No longer two. Even a 13-year-old boy could figure this out, right? They've been joined together, which is why sleeping with someone only is not a marriage. It's nothing near a marriage. Sleeping together is an intrusion on God's design for sex, So God says the privileges of sexual activity, uh, the potential for procreation, and the potential for pleasure in that, that is in the context only of a heterosexual, monogamous, permanent relationship. Let me just say that again because it's so important. The privileges of sexual activity, the potential for procreation, the potential uh, for pleasure is set within the context of a heterosexual, monogamous, permanent relationship. Now, why does God do that? Is God like, you know, he's a cosmic killjoy and he wants our days and our nights and our weekends to be totally boring, you know? And so he's going to rob us of real love and he's going to rob us of real freedom. He's going to cage us in with just one person, just one person. And, you know, so am I going to peek out in my enjoyment of sex after the first few times or first few years? Come on, God. Do you hate us? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. When you take sex out of the framework of marriage, you empty sex of God's intent and all the good which comes. Now think, all the good which comes with the act of sex. Before sex, during sex, and after sex. And the blessing of God, 
cannot exist in any way at all apart from sex and marriage between a man and a woman. And if you, if you read well, you'll find that there's a lot of secular people who are really, really honest about that. I found one. His name is Roger McGuff. He wrote this poem. Listen to what he says. The act of love lies somewhere between the belly and the mind. And I've lost the love some time ago, so I've only the act to grind. High on bedroom darkness, we endure the pantomime. Ships that go bang in the night run aground on the sands of time. Saved in the morning, it's cornflakes and then goodbye. Another notch on the headboard. Another day of wondering why. The act of love lies somewhere between the belly and the mind. I lost a love some time ago, so I've only the act to grind. We should thank God that we have a God who's able to restore the years that the locust has stolen. We should thank God that we have a God who's a God of grace. We should thank God that we have a God, not just of one, two, or a few chances, but many, 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 many chances. And we should also thank God that he loves us enough to tell us what is best as it was in the beginning. And if you are listening, what you'll find in that is you're going to find life and you're going to find freedom and you're going to find fullness and you're definitely going to find fun. Fun. I want you to think with me. If someone asked you, are you having fun in your marriage? Well, we're involved in a Christian marriage. I don't see how that's possible. <laughs> that better not be our answer. That better not be our answer. Listen to Agatha Christie. She, she said this. An archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. Why? The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. By the way, she's act- she was actually married to an archaeologist. Is your marriage fun? You get to sleep together. You get to eat together. You get to have conversations together. You get to talk late at night together. You get to take walks together. You get to sleep together. You get to serve and worship and live together. And every night when you go home, they're there. They're there. Two songs. Tell me which one is your marriage. Number one, now I've had the time of my life. Number two, all you ever do is bring me down. It's a good question. Pharisees, hey, let's talk about divorce and what is or isn't allowable. Jesus, hey, let's talk about marriage and why under God it is so so wonderful. See the difference? It's huge. It's huge. Let's pray together. If the men who will be serving communion would come forward, uh, my prayer is actually going to be a quote from Martin Luther on marriage. Do not forget that you are both diseased persons full of infirmities and therefore expect the fruit of those infirmities in each other. Do not act surprised about it as if you had never known it before. Decide to be patient with one another. Remember that you took one another as sinful, frail, imperfect persons 
and not as angels or as blameless or as perfect. Amen. Amen.